Last week we finished 1 Timothy, so we're going to now start on 2 Timothy. There's some theology stuff in it, but mostly it's just Paul's last encouraging letter to Timothy before Paul dies. It's full of encouragement, not a lot of heavy advice, but there is some. So, Paul, an apostle of Messiah Yeshua, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Messiah Yeshua, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Messiah Yeshua our Lord. Standard Pauline introduction. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I don't know what the tears were about other than perhaps when they parted as Paul was being carted off to Rome. Entirely possible that that's what he's talking about. Verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Stop there for just a minute. The idea that spiritual gifts need to be fanned into flame. Paul obviously laid hands on Timothy and ordained him. And in that process, Timothy received spiritual gifts. And spiritual gifts need to be exercised. And if they're not exercised, they wither and aren't available when you actually need them. So it's not like magic, where you've got your ammunition that's been sitting up on the shelf for 30 years, and all of a sudden you need it, and you take it down and load it up, and it doesn't seem to work that way. The way it seems to work is the more you use your spiritual gifts, the better they become or the stronger they become. So... This idea of fanning them into flame is by way of saying you need to keep using them and you need to keep them up or you will lose them. Verse 7, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This is one of those triplets in Scripture. I have talked about this a lot in the past. Whenever you see a triplet like that, you ought to stop and just think about it and see what's being said. Because, of course, God himself operates as a triplet, if you will. So power, love, and self-control, I will suggest to you, is the essence of God. God's power source as exercised in the world is the Holy Spirit. When Yeshua, for example, breathes on his disciples after his resurrection... He says two things. He says, first thing, he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he says, wait in Jerusalem until you get endued with power. And the endowment with power happens at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes down. I don't know, quite frankly, what happened when Yeshua breathed on him before that and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Because I am absolutely sure that if the Messiah himself breathes on you and says, receive the Holy Spirit, you've got the Holy Spirit. I'm pretty confident that that was effective. So I'm not sure what the difference is between that and then being imbued with power. 
comment was that uh, when the Holy Spirit came down on Pentecost, he came down as tongues of fire. So certainly that. The comment there was that when Yeshua sent them out two by two before his crucifixion, they had authority and they were able to cast out demons and heal people and, and so forth, which are all, of course, manifestations of the power of the Holy Spirit. So, as I say, I'm not quite sure how all that sequence works in the gospel because they got sent out and they had the ability to do things that were signs of the manifestation, you know, healing people and casting out demons and so forth. Then he tells them, after his resurrection, receive the Holy Spirit and breathes on them. And he says, hang around here in Jerusalem until you get power. And then, of course, on Pentecost, we get Holy Spirit coming down in tongues of fire and everybody speaking in other people's native languages. So I don't really have a very good, clear, crisp explanation for all that. If I did, I would give it to you, but I don't. But his triplet here, power, love, and self-control, power, I believe, is the Holy Spirit. Love, I believe, is God the Father. It says over and over again that God is love, which is not the same as saying love is God. People get that confused sometimes. The fact that God manifests love doesn't mean that love is necessarily of God. And then self-control, I would suggest, is the Son, because he was obedient unto death and exhibited self-control when it was required. I'm sure he had self-control all the time, but the obvious manifestation of extreme self-control is when he went through the whole thing on uh, Passover. So verse 8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave to us in Messiah Yeshua before the ages begin, and which now has been manifested through the appearance of our Savior, Messiah Yeshua, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, period. That's all one sentence. So the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, okay, that's straightforward, didn't call us because of our works, which is to say he didn't call us because we were such hot rocks, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave to us in Messiah Yeshua before the ages began. So the purpose and grace of God was given to humanity through Messiah Yeshua, and it was given to humanity through Messiah Yeshua before anything was created. So then, verse 10, and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Yeshua Messiah. So the gift was given to us before the creation. God set it up before the creation that salvation was going to come through Messiah Yeshua. And that was his gift to us according to his purpose. And then when Messiah shows up, that gift and purpose are made manifest. We get to see them. Before that, they were 
not visible to us, even though they were known to God. So, verse 10 again, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Messiah Yeshua, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So the deal there is that God's plan in Messiah Yeshua, which was his gift to humanity, was made manifest by the appearance of Yeshua and his death, which gave us access to eternal life. And then verse 11, for which, which is the gospel, which is the good news about the gift that God gave through us through Messiah Yeshua. So, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, period. So the reason that he is suffering the way he is suffering is because, as you all remember, at the Last Supper, Yeshua says to his disciples, they hate me, and because of me they will hate you. In fact, I was listening to Ron Dart today. He's at the end of John, just before the crucifixion, with all the business before Pilate and Peter betraying him and all that kind of stuff. And one of the comments that he made as he's reading this, Pilate is really trying not to be involved. So first time Pilate comes out and says, I don't find any fault in this man. And they say, well, he's violated our law. Oh, well, let's send him to Herod. In other words, I will kick this out of my department and over to somebody else's department so I don't have to deal with it. So Herod doesn't do anything. And gets back to Pilate, and Pilate still doesn't want to have anything to do with it, and he tries to get them to knock it off. And they're all screaming and foaming at the mouth that this guy deserves death. And, of course, finally, all right, I will release a prisoner to you at the Passover, as is traditional. Give us Barabbas. Kill this Yeshua guy. And Dart's comment was, what you're seeing there is an irrational display of absolute hatred and rage. Because realistically speaking, Yeshua has never harmed anybody except a couple of money changers that he ran out of the temple. But he didn't call fire down from heaven or any of the other normal prophet stuff that he could have done. All he's ever done is healed people and taught. Yet they have this irrational rage and hatred against him to the point where they won't listen to reason. Roman governor, what the heck is the problem here? I don't see anything about this guy that deserves death. I mean, he may be a little wacky, but he's not dangerous or anything like that. But they won't hear of it. So for Paul to say here, which is why I suffer as I do, is he's echoing what Yeshua said, which is they're going to hate me and because of me, they're going to hate you. When Paul is saying here, this is why I suffer, he's suffering for the gospel's sake. And the reason for that, of course, you all know the story of Paul. Everywhere he goes, he causes a riot, goes to the synagogue first, gets stoned, gets beaten, etc., etc. And of course, finally, when he goes back to Jerusalem, gets framed for bringing a Gentile into the temple and... Again, 
the Romans don't know what to do with him. The last thing Paul wants to have happen is to be turned back over to the Jews or taken back to Jerusalem because they're laying in ambush and will ambush him on the way back and kill him. So that's the last thing he wants. And the Romans are saying, what do we do with this guy? And finally Paul says, all right, I appeal to Rome, which means I got to get out of town, otherwise they're going to find a way to get to me and kill me. And Festus put him in custody because he had no idea what to do with him, and typical bureaucrat. All right, we just put him on ice until my tour of duty is over here, and the next guy can deal with him, so I don't have to deal with it. Pilate's trying to do the same thing. I don't want to deal with him either. The comment was that Agrippa said if he had appealed to Caesar, he'd have been set free, but I think Paul didn't want to be set free because the whole country was sort of lying in ambush for him and wasn't going to be safe if he was out on the street. The comment was, well, gee, why didn't he just step out of there and trust in the Lord? And if it was the Lord's time, he'd die. If it wasn't the Lord's time, he wouldn't. And two things, maybe three. The first thing is you remember when Yeshua is standing up on top of the temple being tempted and Satan says, Go ahead and step off the roof, because if you are the Son of God, angels will come and swoop you up. And Yeshua says, you will not tempt the Lord your God. So sort of thing one is if you know that there's a mob out to kill you, and you don't have a real good reason you want to be a martyr, don't tempt the Lord. Thing two is, of course, he wrote a lot of his letters from prison. So he still had a bunch of stuff to do. And if he had been taken out by a group of angry Pharisees, letters to Timothy would never have been written, for example. So my philosophy on trusting on the Lord is trust on the Lord, but look both ways before you cross the street. So second sentence in verse 12. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day What has been entrusted to me? There's a couple of translations of this. The actual Greek says, I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day my deposit. English Standard says what has been entrusted to me. Other versions say what I have entrusted to him. Translator's choice. I have always heard it as what I have entrusted to him, which is to say, I have entrusted my soul to God and I am fully convinced that he is able to keep it safe until that day. The other way is he's made a deposit in me of his spirit, if you will, and I am convinced that he will be able to keep that. In other words, the gift will remain until that day. Could be either one. I don't, I don't know. The comment, if you go back to verse 9, that he has called you to a holy calling, then that's the deposit that he has put in you, and he is able to maintain it in you until that day. Or, as I say, the other thing it could mean is, I have entrusted my soul to him, and he is able to keep it. Quite frankly, I like that better. But that's just me. It's translator's choice. So verse 13. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Messiah Yeshua. 
by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So again, we're talking about a deposit, which is the gifts of the Spirit that have been given to Timothy, and of course were given to Paul. Paul raised people from the dead. Paul healed people. Paul cast out demons. 15. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Among them are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiporus, for he has refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So Onesiphorus was obviously a faithful friend and a good servant of both God and Christ. Chapter 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Messiah Yeshua, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So the idea here is a believer is expected to replicate himself. You have been given life, and you are expected to pass it on, and that passing on involves teaching. One of the things about both Judaism and Christianity is there are lots and lots and lots of sects, each of which varies on something that they think is really important. And if you don't agree with this particular point of Scripture the same way they do, you're not part of our group. And not being part of our group can either be fairly mild. I don't think Presbyterians hate Methodists. Or it can be really strict and severe to the point of warfare. So there have been something on the order of 20% of the population of Europe died during the wars of the Reformation. Vicious, vicious stuff. And they were all Christians. And they were disagreeing on a point of doctrine. And that disagreement came to warfare. Part of it was Catholic against Protestant. Part of it was within Protestantism. So you had the English Civil War that was fundamentally over religion. The Catholic Church and the Counter-Reformation went after all Protestants, but you had then differences between Calvinists and Arameans, which often came to violence. But that whole period from the 16th to the 17th century was bloody in Europe. That's why the pilgrims left Europe and came to the United States, is because they were being hunted down. You need to figure out which king of England you're talking about, whether or not he was a Protestant king or a Catholic king. But the Protestants would go after him because he was a Catholic. Mary, Queen of Scots, was a Catholic, and she started slaughtering Protestants while she was called Bloody Mary, all of which, coming back to Paul, has to do with teaching. Now, you always have human struggles for power, and those often get cloaked in religion. I understand that completely. But human struggles for power tend not to be as vicious 
as human struggles over religion. You know, you conquer the other people, you take the old king out, slaughter him and his children, and okay, we're done. Whereas wars of religion, you start rooting people out and burning down churches and that kind of stuff, which is not really part of the struggle for power. It is a motivating factor in the struggle for power that makes the struggle for power more vicious. Whereas it's just King John over here, Richard the Pretender over here, okay, straightforward, who's going to be king? Then once that's decided, most everybody gets to go home and tend sheep. Whereas with a religious war, that very often doesn't happen. All of which is to say, where it says in 2.2, entrust faithful men who will be able to teach others also. One of the problems we have here is, anybody ever play telephone? A party game where you sit in a circle and somebody whispers something into the person next to them and whisper, 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 whisper. And it gets back around, the, the last guy says, all right, this is what I heard. And the first guy says, this is what I said. And they don't match at all. Varying degrees of mismatch. And so what you have, especially with oral passing on, is that kind of a thing, which is why written gospel is important. Verse 3. Share in suffering is a good soldier of Messiah Yeshua. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. He's got three metaphors here. Verse 5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crop. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So what he's telling Timothy is don't get distracted. You were given a gift. You have been made a pastor. Tend to your knitting. You know, this idea of no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. I mean, it's what he's basically saying is don't get involved in stuff that doesn't involve your primary job, which is pastoring a church, teaching the gospel. And all of these are variations on the same metaphor. Verse 8, remember Yeshua Messiah, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. And that, by the way, is the understatement of the week. In fact, I read a really interesting comment, one-liner. I've mentioned this guy before, Doug Wilson, who's the Presbyterian pastor up in Idaho. I enjoy reading his blog. It's called Blog and May Blog. He said that the early model of Christianity was converting whole households, not picking off Satan's stragglers. So the emphasis now is what he calls picking off Satan's stragglers. You find some guy that is in a bad way and you preach the gospel to him and that's a good thing, don't get me wrong. But the early church would convert entire households at one swoop. Cornelius, the Philippian jailer. So the gospel spread was not onesies and twosies. It was entire households and communities at once. Now, one of the reasons that that is a problem nowadays 
to quote C.S. Lewis, is the world has been inoculated with a weak and ineffective strain of Christianity so that when they get the real thing, they're immune. In other words, there isn't anybody in the United States, I don't think, who couldn't quote to you a Sunday school gospel. Jesus died for my sins, and that's often about as deep as it goes. So they think they know, but they don't. And if they don't believe that, then they're not inclined to go further. As I said, they've been inoculated with a very weak strain of Christianity, so when a real thing shows up, they're immune. That's C.S. Lewis, that's not me. But I agree with him. Onward. Verse 10. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Messiah Yeshua with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The only thing I would comment on here is obviously all of this is New Testament 101, if you will. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. I was explaining that to somebody who didn't understand it, and I'll try it again. The whole business of baptism is it represents a symbolic death. A baptism or a mikvah is taken by someone who is in the realm of death. He's come in contact with a corpse or whatever, and of course the ultimate being in the realm of death is not being in the kingdom of God. Because if you're not in the kingdom of God, you're going to die and stay that way. So moving from the realm of death into the realm of life involves passing through water. So what you do when you're baptized is you go down into the water, which represents symbolic death, and then you rise up from the water and you are born again. Go back to Genesis 1. Everything was taken out of the water. Remember the Spirit of God hovered over the water? And when God took Israel out of Egypt, he took them through the water, the Red Sea. So they died to the world and were raised again and reborn as the nation Israel. So this idea of dying with him is a euphemism for baptism. So once you decide to come into the kingdom of God, you must be born again, which means that you must die and be raised from the dead and reborn. Verse 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. So what he's talking about here, and as I say, it's great indoor sport. Messianics love it. We are a group that loves finding little things in Scripture, which is fine. I don't mean to say that as if we shouldn't be searching these things out in Scripture. But we wind up very often arguing with each other over 
words, you know, does this word mean this or mean that? And we wind up missing the big picture for some of the details. And what Paul is saying here is don't get into quarrels about those things because people do. We've had people that believe a certain thing about a small, obscure piece of scripture and when they discover we don't, they're out of here. In fact, years and years and years ago, when the internet was still type instead of TikTok, I was on a prophecy discussion group. I was there for quite a while. Interesting group. And one gal who was the moderator, finding out that I was a messianic, went and checked out a messianic church and came back a little later and said, yeah, it was really interesting. I was liking the music and I was trying to get my fingers on the guitar so we could play the faster rhythms and all that kind of stuff. And then the pastor said he didn't believe in the rapture. And I was out of there. Everything about the church she liked, except the pastor didn't believe in the rapture. And out she went. I don't believe in the rapture either, but that's not a messianic position. That's Johnnyology. You can believe in the rapture if you want to. I don't care. And if I'm right, I'll explain it to you out in the wilderness. If you're right, you can explain it to me on the way up. So again, what he's talking about with Hymenaeus and Philetus, they have swerved from the truth, believing that the resurrection has already happened. And what is happening is he's upsetting people. Sort of like, have we been left behind? You know, the old Left Behind series, you remember that was popular, what, 20 some odd years ago? What, if the resurrection's all, why are we still here? That kind of thing. Verse 19. Where God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, the Lord knows who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Now understand honorable and dishonorable use does not mean sinful. The ultimate example of a vessel for dishonorable use would be a chamber pot. Very useful thing to have, but it's not the most glamorous job among the pottery, but it's a necessary thing. So when he talks about honorable use and dishonorable use, he's not talking about stuff that is useless. In both cases, he's talking about stuff that has a use. Dishonorable use and honorable use. The difference between a chamber pot and a wine goblet. That kind of thing. 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So you would really rather be the wine goblet than the chamber pot. What he's trying to say. Verse 22. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Remember, Timothy is a young guy. I don't know whether Timothy is married or not. But even if Timothy is married, this flee youthful passions, one of the things about young guys is they very often are all thrust and no rudder. So... They get enthusiastic about something and off they go. And one of the functions of an older hand like Paul or the older men in the church is to sort of grab him by the scruff of the neck and say, 
get back to what you're supposed to be doing and don't chase off after something that is not relevant. 22 again. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And we just talked about that in the context of the rapture and some other stuff. 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, after being captured by him to do his will. The idea again here is, if you're going to argue with someone, and argument comes with being human. And in a church, as you all know, argument also comes with differing interpretations of the scripture. God bless Paul, but he takes some unpacking sometimes. And if you read Paul just sort of skimming over it, you can wind up in places that I don't think are sound. But you may. So as we discuss those things, it's important that we not discuss them in a rancorous, angry way. In other words, it is not the case, for example, that if you don't believe in the rapture, you're going to burn in hell. Sorry, but I don't see that that's the case. So again, the idea here is as you discuss these things in church, there are going to be differences. As I am fond of saying, Ray and I, for 15 years, did not agree on the night of the Passover. Ray thought it was the 13th going into the 14th. I thought it was the 14th going into the 15th. We pastored a church together for 20 years. We didn't agree. But he held his Passover Seder on the 13th into the 14th. I held my Passover Seder on the 14th going into the 15th. And we met on Shabbat and kept going. So the idea that if somebody disagrees with you over a point of scripture, you've got to break fellowship is just sad. But there are people who do that. And one of the things that Satan enjoys doing is fanning those disputes and getting them to be passionate so that the body scatters. And that's what Paul is warning against here. Et ta chambre.